Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 25 specifically is where we are as we continue in our series entitled The Life of David. Often quoted Mark Twain once said that anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. Again, anger is an acid that can do more to harm the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. We resemble that quotation. We see ourselves in that quotation because it's familiar. There's no one in this sanctuary that is not familiar with the emotion and also the effects of anger. At times we can lose our cool. We can lose our cool when things don't go our way. And we can silently sulk when we don't get our way. And we know the effects of anger that are detrimental to us and to those we work with and those we live with. All of us are familiar with this emotion. All of us know what it is for it to spill over and to spill out upon people that oftentimes we even love and are close to. But don't think that anger is something that that the Word of God doesn't address, and don't think that anger is not something that the people of God haven't walked through. We're in a series entitled The Life of David, and here we are met with this, this outrageous outburst of anger from who will become King David. And as we look closely at this episode in Scripture, we begin to to hear the Word of God speak to us and how God walks with us and and also intervenes at times for our good and His glory. Hear the Word of the Lord as we start with a three-word obituary notice in verse 1 of chapter 25. Now Samuel died. And all of Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in the house of Ramah. It's brief, three words, no flowery words here to eulogize Samuel. No no description of David mourning over Samuel here. This is the first time that we've even mentioned Samuel since he's moved out of the spotlight, since he anointed David a few chapters before. But I do remind you, this is the namesake of the very book that we're studying here. Samuel the prophet is the one who tried to talk the people of God out of looking to their neighbors for a king as everybody else had one. This is Samuel who died, the one who anointed Saul. Samuel died who counseled Saul. It is Samuel who died who anointed David as the successor of Saul. And so, of course, this is, this is a, a huge blow as we're walking through 1 Samuel. We're walking through the life of David. Now, David doesn't comment on this. We don't see this excursion where David is overwhelmed with grief here. None of that we see in this passage here. But, of course, it affects David. And we begin to see that this is a pivotal turning point in the life of David. And it is a reminder to us that your anger and my anger often, if not always, has a deeper root system a deeper root system other than the, the, the sprout of, of a weed of anger that shows forth in your life and in your words and your attitude. There's a deeper root system behind our outburst of anger. Oftentimes that, that root system can be hurts that we have. It can be grief that 
cripples our heart. It can be the failure of others. It can be the failure of ourselves. Sometimes it's a shallow root system. Sometimes for that weed to sprout up of anger, it has a shallow root system of just being hungry and just being tired. If you've ever had a a two-year-old or a three-year-old, you know exactly what that shallow root system looks like. You know how that goes. You know how it goes. You don't have to be two years old. You can be 42 years old, 84 years old to have that shallow root system to be able to sprout up this weed of anger in your life and in my life. There, there's no denying that. And maybe, maybe that root system, although it doesn't excuse whatsoever what David does, and nor does it excuse what we do in our outbursts of anger, but it can help us understand It can help us be patient with ourselves and more importantly, be patient with others. We discover further into the story here, the turning point and how this outrageous outburst of anger comes forth from David. We've got to be introduced to some characters that we're meeting for the first time in verse two and verse three. Then David rose and went to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now last time we left David, previous chapter, chapter 24. David's in the cave there, his pursuer, Saul is in a vulnerable position. Saul doesn't know that David is in the back of this cave. He doesn't know that 600 men are in the back of this cave too. And so David has his opportunity. He has his opportunity to slit the throat of Saul and once for all in this charade. I mean, this this back and forth that is going on where Saul as a tyrant in this maniacal anger of, he's embroiled in himself, is just chasing down David and chasing down David. And David's mighty men are back there saying, this is the opportunity God has given your very foe into your hands. David sneaks up behind Saul. And instead of killing Saul, he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. He goes outside of the cave and he holds it up. He tries to reason with Saul. Is this not proof, Saul, that I am not trying to kill you? All of your advisors are leading you the wrong way. Listen to me. He's trying to appeal to Saul's logic. It's the first time that Saul sort of relents and understands in that moment that, that, that David will succeed him to the throne. They go their separate ways And that leads us to chapter 25, where it seems as if David and his men feel comfortable coming out of the caves, kind of out of the hiding, and they go into the wilderness of Paran. And there they meet this wealthy landowner, this wealthy man who who has the sheep and these goats, and his name is Nabal. And in Hebrew, that name means foolish. He's going to live up to it. I mean, he's going to live up to the folly of life here. In verse 3, he is described in the ESV as harsh and badly behaved. If you look in your Bible and you've got a new international version of the Bible here, it says what? Surly and mean. You don't, you don't want to go into business with this guy. You don't want to be his partner in business. You don't want him to, to, to move into that vacant house next door to you that's been sold by your long friends and neighbors for 20 years. You don't want Nabal as your neighbor here. 
Abigail, as opposites oftentimes attract, her, her name in Hebrew actually means good sense. And she's going to live up to that name. It is described just one word to describe her, which was beautiful. And it seems that it's not only a description of her outer appearance, but it is a description of her inner disposition here. So we've got the foolish one and the good sense one that are married together here. And David and his mighty men, 600, are in the same region. And this sort of small militia has been given cover and shade to Nabal and all of his shepherds. I mean, being a shepherd and owning all of these sheep was risky business. It was now today risky business. It certainly was then. There are bandits that swoop in and raid the camp, steal livestock. Well, David and his mighty men are being able to protect this wealthy business owner and they're able to be in the same area. And so they are going to shear some sheep. And that was a time of a festival. It was a time of a celebration. But it was also a time that David said, hey, you know, this is kind of an opportune time for me to send 10 of my men to receive what is rightly owed to me for the protection that we're offering this man. And verse 16 describes it as one of the servants says that David and his men were a wall of protection around them. So David and his men are doing this. 10 men come before Nabal, and guess what he says? This is a sensible request. It's a customary request. Nothing out of the extraordinary, nothing out of the ordinary here. And Nabal, he thinks differently. In verse 10, we've got a stinging rejection of David's request. This is the essence of what Nabal responds back with. David? Who is David? I've never heard of David. I don't even know who you're talking about. Is this some runaway slave that's trying to scam me out of my hard-earned cash here? Nabal knows exactly who David is. I mean, he's, being, he's benefiting off of David and his men's protection here. And in this honor-shame culture, this really kind of foreign from our American context here, what David hears in this reply is shameful. What David hears in this reply cannot be ignored. What David hears in this reply, it sticks with him, and it sticks with him in a bad way. Now, it's hard for us to understand exactly the context of this. It's hard for us to get into that ancient Near Eastern context. But imagine with me, you've got 75 of your closest relatives and friends. You've got a big family reunion. You rent out a really nice restaurant. You have your private room, five-course meal, wonderful service, wonderful food. You're there for hours. They almost have to shut down the restaurant to be able to provide for you guys. You come to the very end, and it's only then that you sort of raise your hand and say to the waitress, you know, we really not had good service here. I need to talk to your manager. And as the bill is being paid, you say, I can't pay this. Now, that doesn't get us exactly to what's going on here. It's far greater in the context of what we're reading here, but you get a little bit uh, closer to Nabal's blatant disregard of David. And it doesn't sit well with David, so much so that we read in verse 12 of chapter 25, David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. Now, this is escalating really quickly right here. We got 400 of the 600 mighty men, David at their lead and at their charge, that have been insulted by this person. And, and the response, a response, is definitely warranted, but taking 400 men 
to exterminate the ball and the rest of his shepherds here. This, my friends, is a bit of an overreaction. The same David who's better than this is the same David that one chapter before in chapter 24 shows remarkable self-control. He refuses to retaliate even when his, his men were telling him, this is the opportunity, this is the opportunity here. It's the same David that we're looking at. And now we're beginning to see a resemblance of David. David is looking a whole lot like who? Saul. And this is a pivotal point that you're going to be able to see that David acts more alike, he looks more alike, the very one that he is succeeding in Saul. The resemblance only gets stronger the more we go forward. Because what anger clouds David's judgment and anger clouds your judgment. You, you can take something that is said to you. You can take something that is done to you. And when you have this overwhelming sense of anger and you take vengeance into your own hand, you multiply it and you amplify it. And it's not realistic. You, you, you've lost a sense of perspective here. And David is losing a sense of perspective. And he is going to go and have this bloodbath in the middle of the fields here. This, this is going to be the next king. Is this righteous? No. Is this going to sit well with the rest of the people around? The answer is no here. Well, the ball servant in verse 14, he gets wind of what David is going to do. And there is a little bit of conversation that he has with his boss's wife. Now I told you, she was not just beautiful outside, but she was beautiful in disposition. Her name means good sense, and she is going to live up to it as she hears. And not only she hears, but she understands what is going to befall her, the rest of the shepherds, and her foolish husband. Read with me. Starting in verse 18, we read, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two, skin of wine, two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared. Five seas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. If you're wondering, this is the description of the largest gift basket in the Bible, I think right here. <laughs> She's pulling out all stops right here. And laid them on donkeys. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, this is her husband she's talking about. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is within him. Verse 26, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as my husband. The foolish one, Nabal. Verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. This is her saying this to David. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. You might want to put a star next to this phrase here that's coming. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. 
And when the Lord had done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember me. Remember your servant. She greets him. Five sheep thrown in, this large gift basket here, but it's not the gifts that she brings that persuades David. It's the wisdom of her words in essence, and it's easy to get lost. Sort of the weeds of the words here. It's easy to get lost in exactly what's going on between Abigail and David here. The essence is she says, hey, David, don't forget. You, you can trust your God to fight your battles for you. What you're doing here in this angry outburst is you're taking matters into your own hands and it's only going to lead to regret. It's only going to lead to remorse. And she's really crafty. She wants this to, she wants this to sing in the heart of David here. So she rather subtly has this allusion two times in verse 29 to what object? A sling. Now, now, now she's slick about this. She doesn't outright tell David this, but in in referencing this twice here, it's a callback to David's greatest victory where God provided a victory for David and for Israel through the sling over the giant Goliath here. And what she's doing is she's saying, you remember David, as God delivered you from that giant, surely he would do that in regard to this worthless fool that I'm married to, just in case. You're wondering, Nabal and Abigail are out of the honeymoon phase right here. So, (laughs) Now her speech is this cup of cold water on the bowling hot anger of David. And he stops in his tracks, stopped in his tracks. He relents in that moment. He calls off the men. They got their swords drawn. David's got his sword drawn. They're coming in for this battle here. And God does as Abigail says. Abigail said that he would protect. Your God is going to protect your honor. Your God is going to judge those who cross you. And in verse 36 through 38, we have a very detailed examination of these people. They're back at the ranch. I told you when they're shearing the sheep, it was not only a time of work, but it was a festival. And so there's there's a drunken feast that's going on back there with her husband. And so she can't stir him. She can't get through to him. She waits till the next morning. He's hung over from the night before. And then she says, oh, by the way, I had a conversation with that guy that you insulted, David. And then we read in verse 37, his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. It's God's judgment upon this man. He's dead in 10 days, heart attack, stroke. We don't know here. She doesn't stay a widow for long. She trades in her mourner's dress for a wedding dress and she becomes one of David's wives. And I didn't accidentally say that. She is one of his wives. He's first married to Saul's wife. Saul, in spite, takes her away from him. But what we discover in verse 43 is he's already married to Hinnom of Jezreel. So polygamy has entered into this passage already. He's looking like Saul. He's looking like his own son, Solomon. If you know where we're headed in this story, this is not going to be good for the people of God. 
Everything in the Bible is not prescriptive for your life. Sometimes it's descriptive. There's no commentary made about the morality of this. None of it. Silence at this point. But what we see in Scripture is that this is going to lead to destruction. It is going to lead. David takes her as his wife, and there's going to be another another story where he takes someone else that wasn't his wife. But that is for another Sunday. So what we have here is this whirlwind story of of a soap opera. I mean, it is a soap opera that is over the top. It's much more that than any kind of cute, cuddly vacation Bible school story here. These are people in the midst of their humanity. These are people that are living out the very chinks of their armor. You see it in David here, and it's becoming more and more obvious to us that the hero of David's story is not David. Now we're tempted, we're tempted to read the Bible and to see these these great characters and to always see them as examples of morality for us. Be like David, do what David does. What would David do? That will not help you, especially when you come to a passage like this. The hero of David's story is not David. It is clearly David's God. And I just remind you that David, is a, he is an absolutely mixed bag of faithfulness and foolishness wrapped up in the same package. One chapter before, in chapter 24, that probably was years preceding this, certainly months preceding chapter 25 here, David resists the call to anger. He doesn't, he doesn't kill Saul when he has this opportunity to take a shortcut to the throne. And then we just fast forward one measly chapter from chapter 24 to chapter 25. And one chapter later, one insult by this rich man, he becomes this vigilante soldier who is foaming at the mouth, eager to, to dish out justice with his own hands. It's the same guy, same guy, just one chapter of separation. And this same guy resembles, well, you know who he resembles, don't you? Do you know who David looks like? Well, he looks like you. You know who he looks like? He looks like me. Because faithfulness and foolishness are roommates in all of our souls. Yet yesterday's victory over sin that easily becomes today's complicity with our sin. Our courage to take up our cross and follow him on one day oftentimes is met with cowardice as we drop our cross, refuse to deny self and choose our way and choose our will. And God is gracious in this passage to bring Abigail, this this unknown. I mean, David, the great Goliath slayer, David, the, the one who is anointed to be the successor to Saul, he needs a complete unknown by the name of Abigail to intersect with him. This is God's grace to David. David needed someone to speak the truth into his life because when we are harboring anger, we oftentimes make our worst decisions in those moments of the shadows, in the moments of isolation, where where we shut off other people's voices. And sometimes those decisions 
Well, they lead to regret and they lead to remorse for you and for me. God gives us his word. He gives us his spirit that dwells in us. But you know what else God gives us? He gives us one another. He gives us not only the word of God and the spirit of God, but he gives us the people of God. And he gives us the people of God oftentimes to to steer us away from from dead-end decisions in our life that all of us at times will be tempted to make. And oftentimes, those are decisions that we make in, in rash, hasty moments where anger gets the best of us. And we need, we need one another. We need the Abigails in our lives. I, I have a, my own Abigail in the sense that for 24 years, God has blessed me with the, with the wisdom of my wife, Danielle. There's 20 years of a pastor. I, I can tell you there are times, they're not every day, they're not weekly occurrences, but certainly there are times where I say things and certainly times I do things and, and not every person in the church would agree with and not every person would see eye to eye with. And there, there are times where there are hallway conversations and there are times where there are emails that are sent and there are times where there are letters that are written and I'll receive that and I at times will, will, will pull out my sword I'll at times uh, draft an email ready to, ready to point out just how wrong that, that critique was or how misunderstood that was or there are times where, where anger will get the best of me and, and God has been so gracious to give me a wife that at times will say, okay, maybe, maybe we can put the sword down. Maybe, maybe we don't have to be quite so defensive. And maybe we can see just what they mean in that, and be a little bit more empathetic and a little bit slower to anger. And I have a feeling, maybe it's not a spouse for you, maybe it's a coworker for you, maybe it's a friend for you, maybe it's a life group teacher for you, maybe it's someone that's just walked with your father or a mother, maybe it is, it is someone that, that was a roommate with you from 30 years ago at Auburn or Alabama or UAB or Stanford, but God gives us, he gives us people in our lives so that we don't close in and shut the doors to where we just live with our anger. God gives that in the form of Abigail. And I hope you understand that we need others. The the real mistakes that we make are common mistakes that are made in darkness without the light of God's word and without the counsel of God's people. And sometimes those are financial decisions and sometimes those are marital decisions. Sometimes they're work decisions. Sometimes they're relational decisions for us and it can lead to regret. It can lead to remorse. And so this maybe is just a specific reminder to some of you here that stand at a fork in the road and you're, you're ready. You're ready. You got your sword drawn. You're ready to retaliate, and and maybe today is just a day to say, hold on. Maybe you need to pick up the phone. Maybe you need to grab coffee. Or maybe you need to be that person for someone else. Now, I'm not saying get in a hurry to get in people's business. I'm not even saying to take other people's problems upon yourself. But as God's light shines in your soul, oftentimes he leads us to one another to be that counsel and that voice. But it's not just Abigail's example that we see in this passage here. I want you to hear once again what she said. 
What is she saying to David? She is saying, fully trust in God's justice. Fully trust God with your future, David. Anger and revenge are never the path of God here. They're never the way of the Lord. And Abigail agrees with the Apostle Paul who would write centuries later to the church at Rome, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written what vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now I told you this is not best seen in David. This is not look to David as your hero here. Rather, it is look to the, to the one that the New Testament writers called the son of David, Jesus, who was insulted, who was rejected, and rejected by his own people. And as he was being crucified, he could, have, he could have drawn the sword of his vengeance and struck down all of his accusers in that moment, but he did not. He trusted in the will and the way of his father and the innocent one was crucified so we, the guilty ones, could be forgiven. Jesus entrusted himself to the plan of the father. Will you? Will we? Anger and vengeance is not the way of our Savior. The words of our Savior are words that still resound to us. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is a Savior that we follow who would say to the very ones who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the Savior that would tell us to turn the other cheek. Is this the easy way? Of course not. Is this the natural way? Of course not. Is this the popular way? Of course not. But it is the way. It is the way. Because he is the way. He is the truth. And he is the only path to true life. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.